Welcome to the St. Moses Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us. St. Moses is a new church sharing the hope of Christ in the heart of Baltimore. If you unfold a quartered map of the city of Baltimore, you'll find us right where the creases intersect. If you have any questions or any way we can help you, please don't hesitate to reach out at info at stmose, that's S-A-I-N-T-M-O-S dot org. Now, let's continue with the podcast. If you have uh, a Bible with you or a phone, you can flip or thumb your way to Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. If you're Googling, just Google Mark 7 colon 1 hyphen 23 and put in the letters NLT and that should take you to the same version we'll have on the screen. I'll pray. I'll sorry, I'll read and then I'll pray and then we'll get down to work. One day, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many such traditions they've clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. That's the sort of parenthetical statement there is probably an explanation that's because the first audience of this is mixed Jewish people and Gentile people all following Jesus living in Rome a few decades after Jesus' death. So he's helping to explain the background. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave this law from God, honor your father and mother, And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I I can't help you. I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear, All you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You're defiled by what comes from your heart. Then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he just used. Don't you understand either, he asked? Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, it is what comes from the inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within us. They are what defile you. Let me pray. Father, would you come among us by your spirit 
uh, we've invited you here, and just for our own sakes, uh, we, I, out loud, invite you. Make good on your promise, Lord, to inhabit the praises of your people. Come meet with your people who are gathered to worship you. Because if you inspired these words to be written as I believe you did, 2,000 odd years ago, and if you are alive today as I believe you are, it only makes sense to ask you, come help us to wrap our minds around things that uh, are in many ways very hard for us to grasp because of the cultural difference. And help us to wrap our hearts around things that are hard for us to grasp, maybe because of our, maybe our hearts are hard. Maybe my heart is stony. So Father, would you do in us whatever you need to do this morning so that we can hear you? If that is healing wounds, wounds that we've received at the hands of your people, pastors maybe, if that's healing grudges, if that's letting us leading us into forgiveness so that we can hear you, would you do that? And Father, if it is giving us the gift of humility or eyes of faith this morning to see you clearly for the first time, would you do that today so that we can hear you and respond with obedience? In Jesus' name, amen. There's a phenomenon uh, that's well known in the um, celebrity social media world where every once in a while, a celebrity on Twitter will comment on the feed of one of their followers, somebody they've never met, somebody they've never known, somebody they don't know from Adam, but they will jump into the, the feed of one of their followers and post a comment which, of course, goes crazy viral and everybody's excited that Taylor Swift or whoever has just commented on uh, Joe Blog's page or Joe Blog's Twitter feed. I don't, I don't know what that phenomenon is called. It's never happened to me. Maybe it's happened to you. Uh, but it raises a question that I think we probably do experience through invitations. Have you ever asked yourself, when it comes to a relationship with the Lord, why am I welcome here? Why, why me? Why, why is the God of the universe inviting me into relationship? Maybe that question has never occurred to you. Maybe we just assume that we ought to be invited everywhere. But I think it's a pretty important question to ask ourselves. Why have we been invited by the God of the universe into relationship with him? And this passage that we're in this morning starts to point us towards an answer. Jesus teaching and his miracles from the beginning of Mark's gospel, where we've been for the last several weeks and where we'll be until Easter, have always drawn an audience right from the beginning. And some of you remember back in chapter 3, early on, things began to skew towards the sinister. There were some uh, religious leaders, a delegation of Pharisees and religious scholars from Jerusalem who showed up in chapter 3, and uh, here's what happened. The teachers of religious law who arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets his power to cast out these demons. It's a pretty damning assessment of Jesus, wouldn't you say? These trained religious scholars who are listening to his teaching and watching him do amazingly kind, generous things and healings and expelling evil spirits. And they see him and they willfully 
attribute his power to the prince of darkness. It's immediately on the heels of that, you'll remember in chapter 4, that Jesus begins to teach in parables. And his first parable, the key to understanding all the other parables, is the parable of the soils, in which it becomes clear that just because you've had lots and lots of exposure to God's word doesn't mean that that word or that God's character has taken root in your heart. If you can be studying and trained and a scholar in God's word and see God in the flesh and mistake him for Satan or one of Satan's workers, then it is clear that simple exposure to the word of God is not sufficient for it to take root in our hearts. Well, our passage today starts off with those guys back again. That's how chapter 7 begins. Those guys from Jerusalem are back, and maybe because they're too afraid of the crowds that have surrounded Jesus, they don't this time attack Jesus directly, but they sort of snoop on Jesus' disciples, his apprentices, and then interrogate Jesus about the the failings of his followers. So in order here for us to understand what's going on in this passage, we're going to have to kind of tuck off the fairway for a moment and get a little bit into the weeds. We will get back to the fairway before too long, I promise you, but so that we don't lose sight of where we're going, let me tell you right up here at the front end, the the big question lurking under this whole passage is this, what makes someone unfit What makes someone unfit for relationship with God? That's the question that's lurking underneath all of this for us. And if you're like me, that sounds a little bit offensive, that question. Like, unfit for relationship? That's kind of harsh. But if we step back for a moment, remember that that for these first century Jewish people, they, they had a very high and deep view of God's perfection of his holiness, of his, of his purity. And, and could it just be, perhaps, that this question is offensive to us partly because our own picture of God is a little bit less high and deep and maybe a little bit more domesticated. Maybe our view of God is a little bit tamer, a little bit more like what I see in the mirror except able to walk on water, able to do some special things. You ready to get into it? This delegation arrives from Jerusalem and they see Jesus' apprentices coming into contact with non-Jewish people in the marketplace. At the end of our last chapter, uh, Jesus began traveling throughout the area and you'll remember people were bringing their loved ones or anyone they knew who was sick. It said primarily out to the marketplaces and that's where Jesus was healing them. They were just touching his robe. It said anyone who came into contact with him was healed. And now this delegation from Jerusalem sees that Jesus' apprentices are being a little bit cavalier about the groceries they purchase in the marketplace that probably have come into contact somewhere along the way with non-Jewish, that's that's Gentile people. And so they confront Jesus with this question in verse 5. Why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without performing the hand-washing ceremony. Hang with me, because this all sounds a little pedantic to us, I'm guessing. But let's try try to wrap our heads around it. For the Jewish people in particular, fitness or unfitness to be in God's presence was connected with the idea of ritual purity. 
with the idea of, uh, of becoming ritually, or, or, or the idea of becoming ritually impure or ritually unclean, what Jesus would call defilement later on in this passage. You wanted to avoid that at all costs, and if you couldn't avoid it, then you wanted to mitigate it. You wanted to get rid of that ritual impurity as quickly as you possibly could. It had nothing to do with uh, microbes. Uh, it had to do with them wanting to be fit to come into, be in community, in worship, in the temple of God. And while it had nothing to do with microbes, uh, microbes, and in fact coronavirus, are a very helpful paradigm for us to try to understand this. So think about this, in the same way that you wouldn't go into a public place like church right now, uh, and then touch your face or your mouth or eat with your hands until you've washed them, Jewish people at the time viewed certain practices or certain contact with certain types of people as, as contaminating, in a sense. It wasn't about microbes, it was just about becoming impure. And just like there are for us higher hygiene codes for doctors, like when was the last time any of you did a five-minute scrub-in, there were higher purity codes for the priests uh, of the Jews. And one of the main thrusts of the Pharisees' teaching, one that Jesus seems to, to, to bump against all the time, is that they would take the purity standards that were for the priests and begin to apply them to the average person, average Jewish person on the street. It's like saying, you or I need in all of our hygiene behavior to act as if we are head of infectious diseases for the CDC in an outbreak area wearing a hazmat suit. We don't. That's, there's different standards. On the face of it, that doesn't maybe sound like such of a terrible thing, but we need to understand the backdrop here in order to get Jesus' explosive response. Jesus, in verse 6, says, You hypocrites. It's a little surprising. seems to come out of the blue. But Jesus realizes that their question to him about his, his disciples, it's not genuine quest to learn. They're not actually wanting to learn from Jesus. They are accusing here. It looks like it's eager-hearted, passion for the things of God, but it's the same people who have willfully mis- recognize Jesus as a servant of Satan, and Jesus now recognizes them to be self-deluded, self-serving, and self-aggrandizing. And so he says to them in verse 8, you ignore God's laws and substitute your own teaching. See, the hand-washing ceremonies that they were pushing so hard and accusing Jesus' followers of not following weren't even part of God's teaching for the non-priests. And while that might seem pretty trivial to us, Jesus gets really fired up about that. And I kind of love it. Jesus just does not have time for humans enforcing human requirements on other humans to be in the presence of God as if those human requirements were in fact God's requirements. Jesus will not tolerate it. I love that. 
Not only were the Pharisees adding purity codes for the priests to the normal people, they were also ignoring basic tenets of God's teaching. And that's what Jesus gets into with them. He launches into this example about uh, ignoring your father and mother and not honoring your father and mother. This is a basic, basic instruction of God for all of his people that runs right through the Old Testament. And they seem not only to be ignoring it, but even more dangerously, some of them seem to be keeping the, the kind of the technical letter of the, the instruction of the law, but at the same time trying to, to kind of skirt around it. Oh, I'm honoring my parents. I would have, but actually I've already earmarked that money for God. So, so I'm, I'm good, right? This is what I would call loophole spirituality. The rotten endpoint of that type of spirituality is self-deception. Self-deception. Look around and you see other people and you think, well, I'm doing a lot better than he is. I look pretty good. I'm, I'm doing all right. And just the utter hardened inability to see what is going on in your own heart. That's why at this point in our passage, just like with the parable of the soils, Jesus turns back to the words of the prophet Isaiah. You'll remember, some of you, the prophet Isaiah, when he was commissioned by God in chapter 6, he had this hard, hard task, and God said to him, essentially, you're going to be preaching to people who, though they have ears, they're not going to listen to you, and though they have eyes, they will nonetheless not be able to see what I am doing amongst them. Go, good luck. So Jesus, in chapter 4, Use the words of that prophet, and he's using them again, a different set here from chapter 29, verse 13, to show the bankruptcy of this path. Oh, so, sorry, this is where he quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, or Isaiah's words applied to you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's a major, major self-deception. Have you have you ever wondered about that? Like like how it is that Julius II, Pope Julius II, could commission the Sistine Chapel to be painted to honor God, could take a vow of celibacy and poverty and obedience, and could have a trove of mistresses penned up in his opulent palace. Have you wondered how it is that pastor after pastor could preach our little cotton socks off on a Sunday morning and then abuse our staff or abandon our wives and kids? They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In Matthew's telling of the life of Jesus, Jesus uses the stunning image of a whitewashed tomb. Said this loophole spirituality. This is, this is like having pristinely painted marble and plaster exterior, but inside it's all death and decay and emptiness. Just like in chapter four, Jesus then turns away from these self-deceived leaders, verse fourteen, and he calls the crowd to come listen to him. Come listen. He tells them a short parable. Parable doesn't sound like a parable to us. It's more of an aphorism, uh, and it goes like this. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes out 
of your heart. You see what he's doing here? He's, he's turning the teaching of the Pharisees on its head. When someone, what, what, what makes someone unfit for a relationship with God? It's not so much about the outside at all. It's, it's not about out here. It's about, it's about in here. The problem isn't our environment. It's our insides. It's not our home. It's our heart. It's not our surroundings, but our soul. That's where the problem is. We aren't contaminated from the outside as if a spiritual bubble suit or some sort of religious quarantine would do the trick. We are unfit, Jesus says, from the inside out. Hard words. The spirit of the fundamental defilement oozes out of us. We're, we're all vectors. We're all carriers. And the hope is not quarantine against the outside, but it's cure from the inside. So we've seen Jesus do before. Uh, at this point, he again calls his apprentices aside and begins to unpack this teaching. I love this about Jesus. Sometimes the things he says are really challenging. They're really challenging for me. But his goal is never just to confuse people. For those who are ready to listen and to hear, he's always going to be patient, always going to unpack it, always ready to explain it. He has no problem sort of filtering out the casual inquirers from the humble listeners. But if you're ready to hear, if you're ready to listen, parable of the soils, Jesus is going to take time to unpack, to explain, to reveal himself. And so he does. He goes on to explain in pretty graphic sort of scatological sewer imagery what he means with this little parable. Right at the center of all of us humans, there's a fundamental misalignment. It's not that pork is bad. It's not that the food we put in our mouths is bad. It's that the inside of us, there's this sideways skewing that ends up producing evil, even if it were possible for us to isolate and spend our entire life in a pristine environment. And so he goes on to say this, for from within, out of a person's heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness, All these vile things come from within. They are what defiles you. All right, we're coming out of the weeds here. As I said at the top end, the question lurking behind this whole passage today is what makes someone unfit for relationship with God? But what if we were to turn that whole question around and just phrase it in a positive way? What makes someone fit for relationship with God, or what makes someone pure? How, what is it that purifies us? I want to sketch out three attempts to answer that question, and the first one's already going to be a little bit familiar to you. Here's the first one, the outward forms approach. This approach maintains that uh, in order to become fit, to be pure for a relationship with God, uh, you need to manage your behavior and manage your environment. So it places a very strong emphasis on do's and don'ts. I'm not sure about that tattoo. It's hyper aware of external influences. It's hyper aware of perceptions. And its resort is often to a strong separatism. Ah, I'm going to stay over here so I'm not influenced by or contaminated by. There's a 
cultural withdrawal in order to help maintain purity. And I want to do justice. As, I mean, each one of these sketches is just a thumbnail, so they're necessarily reductive. But I'm not trying to caricature any of them. I want to be as generous as I can, pointing out some of the potential benefits of these approaches. And for me, one of interpreting this in its best possible light, it, this approach, the outward forms approach, takes seriously the way our behavior, our patterns of behavior, and our external environment can form us internally. wonder how many of you love Amazon Prime. I know I do. It's like Christmas in March, and then Christmas in April, several times. That, that little brown parcel with a smiley face on my porch, it just warms the cockles of my heart and gives me this dopamine hit that I just want it to happen all over again, and so much so that I am willfully almost blind to willfully blind to the algorithms of Amazon that are steering me towards buying what it wants me to buy and then are quite patently charging me more for a certain book than it would charge my wife for that same book. But because I have been formed by this pattern, I'm willing to look the other way. I'll pay the extra money. I'll get that thing, and all along the way, I'm being, I'm being shaped. I'm being shaped to want things and to buy things I don't necessarily need to support things I perhaps shouldn't. The approach I'm sketching here, as you've probably recognized, is the approach of the religious leaders who are interrogating Jesus. We don't know that it was the approach of the Pharisees en masse. I think it would probably be unhelpful for us to assume that it is. But this does very much seem to be the approach that, that Jesus bumps up against with the Pharisees and the religious scholars that he interacts with. And I think, again, being generous, it can start in a good place. Like, what does God ask of me? All right, I'm going to do that and then some. But before long, the external behavior becomes the focus. The external appearance is tidally curated, and the heart is far from God. Here's a second approach. Call this one the inward control approach. Within a few decades of Jesus' return to heaven, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is already spreading like wildfire throughout the Mediterranean basin. And the primary audience at that point is not Jewish people, but non-Jewish people. It's Gentiles. And their main category is not Pharisaical Jewish teaching. It's, it's Greco-Roman philosophy, which has an entirely different approach. So for many of those, uh, Jew, or those Gentile people, they, they're operating out of a mindset that has a fundamental separation of the, the body and the soul, or the body and the mind. Anything that's material, the body, uh, they associate emotions with the body, uh, physical stuff that's bad, and the soul, or the mind, the, the, the reason is, is associated with the soul and the mind, those are good. And, and here's the way you achieve the virtuous life as a man. It's, it's to subject the material world to the world of the soul. So with your reason, 
You subordinate your body and the emotions associated with your body, and you also subordinate everything else that is material that is under your purview, your household. So for a man, this means that the body and the emotions and all other financial assets are subjugated to the control of reason. And the more mastery that you show over your emotions, your ability to control your fear, over your finances, over your property, over the people within your household, like in sexual conquest, the more virtuous you are. Can you imagine now, can you hear Paul's words to husbands and wives now against that backdrop? Out of reverence for Christ, submit to one another. What? Again, trying to be generous with this approach, I think it's very disciplined. There's nothing wrong with discipline. Think of like Greek CrossFit gyms. Think about thoughtful, reasoned decision-making. And so for the, the mantra for the first approach is just do the right thing. The mantra for this approach is mind over matter, the exertion of the will for inward control. But like the first one, this also has a lot of liabilities, not least of which men were really the only ones and free men the only ones who got away onto this playing field. The, the inner control spills over into a control of others. Like, hey, by using my rational faculties and exerting my will, I got my stuff together. Why can't you get yours together? Oh, you can't? Well, I'll take care of that for you. And quickly, those who are controlling themselves begin controlling others. Also, as social scientists are helping us to understand, the, the subordination of your emotions, of our emotions, by our reason, usually just ends up sending them underground for a little while to reappear later. And so an ironic similarity of this approach to the first approach is this disintegration, this forced separation between the mind and the heart. And ultimately, then, it's very easy to arrive at a place where their lips honor me, but their hearts are far from me. Both of these approaches that I've just sketched to you are from the first century environment that the the New Testament is written into, but they don't stop there. I think if, if you're honest with yourself, you'll recognize these both operate all the time today. I see them in my own life, both of these approaches. I remember in high school youth group, after small group lessons, uh, conversations with other guys, sitting in my car in the driveway, we're, we're trying to get, get control of our lust. And we're talking primarily about like filters for our internet on our computer, which are not a bad thing, not a bad thing at all. But as if, like that's where all the focus is, as if the problem were the computer, not here. And I can think of times in seminary, where I'm in the Bible all week long studying God's word and just do not feel like praying. I feel like I I don't even want much of a personal relationship with God and I'm thinking, I just got to try harder. I got to muster a little bit of self-discipline here and pray some more. 
I think both of these, both of these approaches can be active in our lives all the time. I wonder if you recognize either of them in yours. The third way where we're going to spend our last few minutes is the way of Jesus. It's the way that not only he articulates, it's the way that he models, and it is the way that he becomes. So to put it starkly, uh, you could do either of these first two approaches to life without Jesus on your radar at all, or you could do either of them as I have done with Jesus on your radar, but the result usually is to decenter Jesus. This third approach does not make sense at all without Jesus. It's all about him, and you can only, we can only approach this third approach because Jesus exists and because he lives. Here's the third approach, the surrendered to Jesus approach. This approach takes the evil within us seriously. Quarantine's not going to cut it. Self-control on steroids isn't going to do it. We need a cure. We need a change of our hearts. In the words of the prophet Jeremiah, we need a new heart. We need our stony heart taken out, and we need a heart of flesh. We can't, on our own, get pure enough to be with God. We need God to come purify us and to come live within us. So we've already heard in Mark's gospel hints of where this thing is going. We've seen John the Baptist, his first cousin, an outspoken advocate. His head ends up on a platter. So, spoiler alert, things are headed for a grisly end for Jesus, too. The Jewish leaders are going to conspire with the Roman leaders. They're going to have Jesus arrested. They're going to have him tried on trumped-up charges, and they're going to have him executed on a cross. And they, as it were, at that point, breathe this collective sigh of relief. Ah, at last, it's finished. And Jesus, it says, breathes his own sigh on the cross, not of relief, but of completion. It is finished. His pure, his sinless, his sacrificially, voluntarily given life for us so that any of us who trust in him can receive forgiveness so that we're no longer eternally liable for all of the defilement, all of the evil that flows out of us. That magnificent, unexpected, unprecedented act of self-giving is what makes our forgiveness possible. So that when you or I or your friend that you've been praying for turns to Jesus and trusts him, trusts his perfect sacrifice in your place, it's enough for God to forgive us, to erase our guilt, to declare us guilt-free, no longer condemned. But what about this flow of defilement from within inside of us? How, how does that change? How do we replace that with a flow of something life-giving? The great miracle, the, the cure of our souls, as it were, is the work of God's Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus in us. So that's why Jesus will say to his disciples in John chapter 16, it's actually better for you that I go, because if I don't go, you won't receive the advocate, by which he meant, unless I go, you're not going to have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, take up residence in human hearts. 
So this ongoing project in our, in our lives of, of our insides being transformed isn't firstly a matter of, of keeping boundaries or maintaining rules. It's not about mustering more and more willpower and bootstrapping. This, this whole grand project of being cured on the, from the inside out is in Paul's words. It's, it's about doing life in lockstep with the Spirit. I remember back before we had uh, strollers and uh, scooters and bicycles as part of our family walks when it was just Jill and me. I remember sometimes strolling hand in hand, and um, she was a band nerd. She would admit that to you. And so every once in a while, uh, she would do this like stutter step to make sure that we were back in stride together. I don't know if there were first century marching bands, but that's the picture here. The life of being cured from the inside out is in sync with the Spirit of God who takes up residency within us. Not the supremacy of our wills over our circumstances or not our wills subjugating our emotions, but it's about our wills being surrendered to his will. Not my way, but your will be done. It's not about managing our behavior in the first instance, but it's about keeping our minds and our hearts integrated in relationship with the Spirit. It's not about bootstrapping obedience, but it's about cultivating the life of the Spirit in us that changes our desires and begins to enliven changed behavior. Do you see the difference? There's no, there's no room for pride in this approach. It's not me doing it. The work is God's. The cure is God's. We're participating for sure. Sure, there's even labor and struggle. But when we are struggling and laboring, it's this wrestling to stay in step with him so that we don't step out of sync into willful independence. But instead, we are in joyful, humble dependence on him. And so... For the Gentiles of the first century where the goal was this self-control, Paul would say the road to self-control isn't about subordinating your emotions to your reason. The route to self-control is keeping step with the Spirit. And when the Spirit is living in you, in your relationship with the Spirit, the Spirit begins to produce fruit. So we have oh, Galatians 5 here. Fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's not an exerting of ourselves so much as it is the cultivating of the life of God inside of us. Jesus would use similar imagery in John chapter 15 and would say, abide in me. You're a branch on the vine. You've got to stay connected, stay plugged in. That's what produces the fruit in your life. It's not about setting up boundaries in the first instance. It's not primarily about mind over matter. It's about cultivating the relationship with the Spirit of Christ in us. That's where purity comes from. And it's because purity is based on the forgiveness of Jesus and based on the life of God within us that, that we can see Jesus in chapter 5 of Mark, which Renee preached on, Jesus going across the lake out into Gentile territory, into a defiling place like a cemetery, going to a man who had a legion of evil spirits inside him and healing that man. Because purity wasn't primarily about boundaries or rule-keeping. 
It's because of this that we're going to see from here on for a ways in Mark's gospel, Jesus turns away from the religious leaders and he goes on a journey into Gentile territory. And we're going to see next week that he'll get into a discussion with a Gentile woman who just wants to see her daughter healed. And Jesus will see this woman best him in debate. He wants a relationship with her. He wants to bless her because purity is not a matter of codes or external forms or inward control. It's a matter of the life of the Spirit in the person who's received forgiveness because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Band can uh, retake your places and Sam will lead us into communion in just a moment. But I want to pray this morning because I think in a group this size there's always there always be people who maybe tried to pursue the Lord tried to pursue a relationship with God through managing external forms or maybe like I have tried to pursue a relationship with the Lord through this inward exertion of self-control I just want you to hear God offering to you this morning a different way, the way of Jesus that is a way of trusting him, of receiving forgiveness that he has purchased with his blood, and receiving the life of the Spirit in you. And if that's something you want uh, to begin this morning, you can just pray a prayer along with me in the quietness of your hearts as I pray. And for others of you, maybe like me, you've walked with Jesus for years, and yet you know there's this constant, constant tug of war where we're, we're trying to take over the reins again. Maybe you just need to be called back to a life of surrender to the Spirit of Christ. I'm going to pray if either of those prayers coincide with what God is doing in your heart. You could just pray along with me in your heart. Father, some of us here this morning we're realizing that what we've been questing after you offer to us freely what we've been trying to earn what we've been trying to maintain or to manufacture you offer us as a gift so this morning we just want to acknowledge that the defilement flows out of our hearts ask that you would forgive us. That you would look at Jesus' pure sacrifice on our behalf and you would declare us not guilty, no longer condemned, forgiven. We pray that you would give us the gift of your Holy Spirit, that the third person of the Trinity would take up residence in me. That you would gradually renovate our hearts change my desires, change the things I long for, change what motivates my behavior, and so change my behavior. Father, we pray for that gift this morning. We pray that you would help us to do a U-turn. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you hear our prayers. And Father, for those of us who have walked with you for years, maybe, and yet still find ourselves trying to trust in our ability to do it on our own, reverting to a rule-keeping or a loophole spirituality. Father, we pray that you would gently chasten us and bring us back to you. 
you would soften our hearts and let us see ourselves clearly. Give us the gift of accurate self-sight. Break us out of self-deception and help us to fix our eyes on you and to trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Father, cause your spirit to live and to lead within us and help us to keep in step with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. If you were in either of those categories and you wanted to pray those prayers in your heart, I'd encourage you to take another step and follow up. Either you can drop a little note saying as much in one of the offering boxes during the offering time or you can shoot any of the pastors an email or a Slack message. Nobody's going to hound you, but we would love to follow up with you and help you on your journey in community following Christ. 